Hello and welcome to The Way to Freight. In this series, we explore the intricate yet powerful connections between the shipping and commodity markets. My name is Alex Yunovich and I'm the Global Head of Freight at Argus Media. And just a quick reminder that subscribers of Argus Freight can use the limited edition link on the podcast page to download exclusive content related to the topics we'll discuss here. And today we're talking about the thorny road of shipping going green and focusing on the tanker market specifically. Right now, it seems that confusion still rules the day when it comes to identifying the realistic, not just buzzword solutions for decarbonization of the global fleet. And there are many uncomfortable questions left in regards to the timelines, cost, impact on freight, and so on. So today we welcome a very special expert guest to try and find answers to those questions, and that is Rustin Edwards, who is the head of fuel procurement at Euronav. Hey, Rustin. Good afternoon. So, Rustin, you recently visited Posidonia, and I guess you did both the exhibitions and the parties, and I assume you've talked to a bunch of your peers about the decarbonization topic. So what are your impressions? Do you feel like there is a critical mass of ship owners supporting a specific green fuel or solution at this point? Well, I think a lot of the, at least the ship owners that I spoke to and ourselves at Euronav, you know, we've, we're, we're starting to come to terms with a pathway that we're going to follow to decarbonize our fleets to meet the 2030 and 2050 requirements. From what the discussions I had, you know, biodiesel and drop-in fuels seem to be the focus point that everybody has right now to get themselves into good stead. Methanol is also now becoming more and more of a talking point around a green supply fuel. But then after methanol, you know, do you go to hydrogen or ammonia? That's still a big question mark for a lot of people in their mind. So I think people are trying to grapple in the here and now and not so much 15 years from now. So we, st- so we're still basically talking about solution, trying to grapple what's, what's the best way. But if we already saying biodiesel and methanol might be the 2030, uh, or at least solutions for 2030 goals, when do you think are we going to go more into the action phase where people are going to invest more on in those solutions or, you know, scale them up? Is there like specific timeline you think which are realistic? Well, in, in, in my mind, the realistic investment profile, if you're looking at biodiesel and biodiesel and increasing biodiesel production so that a B30 or a B20 blend can become kind of standard within the industry, you know, we are looking at a fair amount of new biodiesel production that has to come online in order to meet those requirements. Plants are being built in different areas and oil refineries are being converted in different areas in order to meet the renewable fuel production levels that are going to be required, but it's still a long way down the road. I mean, I think if you look at biodiesel scale up capability, you're probably, we're probably in a 2026, 2027 type time frame before you have enough that you can start making a material impact. Mm. This is just on a supply basis point, not just on a pricing point. You know, methanol has a very similar price point, the scale up issue, because again, we're looking at green methanol versus brown methanol. Uh, and so when you start getting into the green methanol, you need to have the more renewable feedstocks to come into the production versus using natural gas as the production feed. And all that's going to take time to scale up those renewable stocks in order to uh, have the production there to meet the forward demand. Okay, so what are the main challenges there to get, apart from the, you know, production scalability for biodiesel, for instance? Is it something that can be done to, like, you know, speed in the process of this transition? Well, I think if we focus on biodiesel as a, as a first stage, uh, first mover 
type fuel to go in into 2030. Biodiesel is going to need the production capacity, so that means that's going to require the investment to make it happen. The feedstock is going to need to be produced in order to make that biodiesel happen. And the feedstock has to come from your waste oils, uh, your waste foodstock oils, sorry, not waste oils as in petroleum, but biomass foods. And other feedstocks that can be grown, like cellulose, origin feedstock, algae feedstocks, all those other microorganisms that can be produced to create the esters to make the biodiesel happen. So I think there's a lot that has to be done in that feedstock side of the space, as well as the production capacity space, in order to meet the requirements. I mean, the one benefit of biodiesel is the fact that it utilizes the existing infrastructure that's already been built worldwide, so there's no mm. need to redesign terminals, bunker barges, or ships okay. to run studies. Uh, what about approvals? Is it like at, at this point uh, you can just pretty much pour any biodiesel plant into the ship, or like you, you can go ahead and use any methanol? Is there any issue there? Well, on the approval side, again, back to biodiesel, you know, there was some movement at the last MEPEC meetings within the IMO where they have now said that a 30% bio blend no longer will require experimental fuel certificate or uh, class approvals as well as engine manufacturing approvals. So the, the IMO is getting on board with, yeah, a B30 bio blend works. And so with that regulatory hurdle reduced, uh, it should make adoption more readily available to a lot of ship owners. And now it just becomes a case of getting an ISO spec adjustment where biodiesel blends are included as part of the fuel quality, but not so much as a table two quality spec, but as an annex spec around bioblended material. Okay. Uh, but if we, if we're talking apart from just the fuel, uh, if we talk the ships now. So as I understand, bi- uh, biodiesel blends, you can just readily use in the, uh, just the existing engines which run the LSFO. And correct me if I'm wrong. But if you're going to methanol, you have to do some conversion to the vessel. So how much like time and resources are required to just convert one ship to methanol? And well, is that an issue? Well, for methanol, it, it, there's, for, from a shipboard handling perspective for methanol, yes, there's changes you have to make to the fuel system in order to handle methanol. The biggest change you probably have to do that requires the most labor is changing out the gaskets. Hmm. Gaskets are petroleum-based, they're rubber, synthetic rubbers, and because methanol is an alcohol, alcohol tends to dry out the gaskets, which then will result in liquid, le- uh, leakages and spills on board the ship. So changing out your gaskets in, t- in your entire fuel system to a Teflon-based gasket can be done. It's expensive, but once it's done, you can still use it for normal fuel service or biodiesel blend service because those gaskets work regardless of the fuel. Just Teflon is a more expensive material. But once you make those gasket changes, then you have to change out the fuel pump to one that can run with methanol versus the rotary gear pump that is currently used for, for fuel oils because, again, the viscosities are different than the makeup of the, of the material. Mm-hmm different than a heavy fuel. And you don't have to do that. You've got to go to the dry dock to change all those gaskets. You don't have, to, make you don't have to go to a dry dock. It's, it, it's, it's, it's most likely a wet berth type uh, mm. transa- you know, transition. So I think what would end up happening if you were going to make a ship methanol ready, you would basically do it when your ship goes in for your normal regulatory dry dock period mm-hmm. and just roll it into that whole expense structure of conversion. Right. But dry docks, again, like uh, is uh, once every two years, right? Roughly. Roughly, yes. Yeah. So do you think that some people might move up their schedule for dry docking just to say, oh, maybe it's time to get ready for methanol now? 
or is everyone going to wait till the end of the cycle? No one's actually in the rush. And is it going to be like just one specific year, maybe maybe next year, when we're just going to see a bunch of vessels uh, going into dry yeah, docking and doing this? About a, a transitional fuel event that doesn't have to happen until 2030. Mm. So not and really. So will people, you know, spend the money today for something that will impact their ship in seven years? Maybe. Mm. They might spread it out because you think seven year period, there are three dry, potentially three dry dockings that could happen. Most likely two. Mm. But and so you have three different periods where you could do the work. And so do you just spread that work out over three periods and kind of amortize the cost over a longer time period or do you do it all at once? I mean, I think it's the, the underlying economic condition of shipping at the time of your decision is going to be the real driving factor there more than uh, mm. anything else. So in other words, in the next few years, at least we're, st- we're still talking about biodiesel plants and conventional fuels for now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. And you mentioned that both the biodiesel and uh, meth- uh, autis- uh, for biodiesel, it's more of a 2030 goal solution, right? Which solutions are we talking if we're going further? So let's say we're past 2030, we're looking at 2050 goals. Where should our eyes rest then? Well, I, I still, you know, my my own personal belief is that uh, ammonia still gives us to that 2050 timeframe. Yeah, you know, when you think of investment and again production and trying to make blue ammonia and green ammonia, it's going to take a big investment in the in the infrastructure profile to to generate hydrogen from a green method to create green ammonia. Mm. And you know, you're talking a 15 year time frame, maybe even 20 from this point. And then you have to think of all the supporting infrastructure that has to be built in order to distribute ammonia once you produce it to all the different places around the world. And, you know, that all takes time. And so I think that's where when you think of this from a time scale perspective, yeah, it's great to talk about an ammonia shift today. Mm-hmm. Today, OK, getting the right ammonia into your mix is the next challenge you have. And that you might be too far ahead of the curve at that point. Mm-hmm. So it is something. That will happen, I think, on a timescale basis. But, you know, 10 to 15 years to get the technology finalized, to get the supply chains finalized and get the financing finalized. Mm-hmm. And we have, if, we, if we're talking vessels life cycle, right, realistically, which is, which is, which is quite long, the, uh, it doesn't really make sense, it seems, to pre-invest in any of such solutions, realistically, considering that they're not fully available. So realistically, while ammonia is quite a bit of a buzzword, it seems these days, and so does some other solutions as well, can we expect any massive like investments, let's say, in the next 10 years pre-preparing for Well, for this? I mean, there are a lot of companies like ourselves who have made ammonia-ready ships, or they're mm-hmm. ammonia-ready ships that won't be launched for another year or two mm-hmm. years. So people are making those investments because they're trying to make a determination as to where they're going to be in the life cycle of the vessel 20 years from now. I mean, everybody has a crystal, nobody has a, has an exact crystal ball, but they're all trying to make a guess of where things are going to be. Mm-hmm. But even making a ship ammonia ready, you know, you're still going to be burning conventional fuel up to a certain point. And so the ship is still going to be designed to run on conventional fuel. And that design can work with methanol as well as biodiesel blends with minor adjustments. 
Okay. Let's talk about costs now, because obviously none of this is cheap, right? Like all the uh, all the greener fuels at least have one thing in common. They tend to be more expensive than the, than the conventional ones. And uh, then converting the vessels or investing in preparation for any of those solutions, again, takes quite a bit of money. Now, the question is, at least in the tanker market, how easy or possible or whatever the word is, you think it would be to pass on those costs for ship owners to their customers? Like, is it, is it going to be a relatively simple transitions? Are customer, customers in this market keen to pay for greener vessels or not? Well, I think in the current, until there's a regulatory framework that forces the charterer of the ship to account for their emissions profile, it'll be very hard to pass those costs along. Once there's a regulatory framework in place, then I think it becomes a much easier discussion because, okay, now that ship works. And this, is, again, is where kind of the beauty, at least in my opinion, of where the beauty of a bio blend, biodiesel blend comes into play is that, you know, you can run a normal ship on VLSFO or HSFO if you have a scrubber up until the point that the regulation starts coming into play. And then mm. pricing will say, okay, if you're going to burn a bio blend, the fuel cost goes here, freight cost goes there. Mm. Okay? Regulatory reason why you're burning the biodiesel because then it makes sense. Okay. Uh, I think in today's market, if we offered somebody, it would have to be a customer keen on running on a bio blend today to cover the cost of that fuel. Do you find many customers, at least in the tanker market, keen to like, you know, pay at least for, let's say, some of the greener solutions that say we, we'd rather prefer a long term deal on the greener? the greener fuel here, for instance. So it's not happening I have, yet. I have not heard of any, but that's a bit out of my uh, remit because I'm not on the chartering side. <laughs> Fair enough. Because uh, uh, that's an interesting comparison, by the way, because a lot of people are taking, uh, putting container market into, let's say, comparison and saying in there, the custom, the customers are often prepared to pay this, this price difference. But I guess there is a very specific, I'd say, again, difference between what customers are, exist there in the uh, container market and what customers exist in the tank, tanker market, right? Because the uh, end product uh, is, is very different. Again, do you find that it's a fair comparison between, let's say, putting tankers or dry bulk with containers when it comes to fuel costs or passing in long costs? Well, it is again. It comes down to the charterer and what they're trying to achieve. And so, in, at least in the container business, you do have charterers who have ESG agendas on their own because they're basically dealing in finished consumer goods, mm. not in the raw materials. And so, from the finished consumer goods standpoint, if I'm shipping goods from point A to point B, and my customers are telling me I want that to be as low carbon as possible, mm. and yes, I have an incentive to go back to my logistics company, logistics handler, and say. I want a zero carbon solution to move that box from point A to point B. Okay. So, but still, if we're talking tank and tankers then, considering there is green on agenda for everyone these days and everyone's talking, talking about it, do you think there's going to be more and more deals now coming up in the tanker market where the charterers will be more open to say have a long-term deal like a COA, for instance, or a long period deal where they would just say we are, will be prepared to pay a premium on this long-term deal as long as the vessels burn cleaner fuel? And also, is this the way to move forward? Is this something that could help to move the agenda forward? As soon as you get customers willing to pay for it, you know, I think that's something that will help move it forward. But again, in, in the current chartering space, I, 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 I'm really not someone to talk about that because I don't know the, how those discussions are going on. You know, are those discussions even happening as of yet? Mm -hmm. But I guess the only realistic way for this to happen is 
probably on the um, some specific, very homogeneous, I guess, routes somewhere, uh, some that go around the major bunkering hubs, because that's where the greener fuels would be firstly and more readily available. So, we, uh, so we're talking place, uh, things which are around Rotterdam, Fujaira, Singapore, places like that. So yeah, and, and again, it may be on a specific route, like if you have a ship that's always in the echo zone because that's where you run, mm. then you might have a higher incentive to run greener fuel because you're in the echo zone anyway and you're paying mm-hmm. up for the 0.1 fuel that you're burning and you may not get as better utilization from a scrubber as a ship maybe in the open ocean would get. So yeah, there could be some uh, specific niche trades that give the right bang for the buck when it comes to burning a low carbon fuel versus a uh, traditional fuel. Mm. Do you think, uh, because like, again, considering the costs and some people are now saying more and more that the charter party language is often a little outdated considering the new realities, especially the ones referring to the speed of the vessel in the charter party. And so the, the owners would be more readily allowed to slow steam. For instance, do you think that's one of the solutions? Is it something that is like I think it's, I think it's a, 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 a very interesting solution that can be approached from both the charterer and the ship owner and also from the port facilities. Yeah, I know that we're involved with uh, trying to get the virtual notice readiness so that you arrive to a port just in time. You're not arriving into port and queuing up or you're not trying to make higher speeds to get to port. It's more of you tender into when you're going to actually arrive, you get to port, you go to dock, you discharge and you leave. And so you try to eliminate all the delays that happen with shipping, trying to meet a charter party speed versus a an arrival right. speed. So it does, it does require or probably will require at some point changes in how lay time is calculated. What are, what are your lay can windows? And you, think, and you think there is already, let's say, a movement towards that, right? To uh, I think there is a movement. I think there is. I think there are conversations going along along those lines. Yes, uh, I think that's it's probably a good step in the right direction. Okay, interesting. And, and I gotta ask because that used to be a previous buzzword, let's say, when it comes to greener fuels, the LNG. Right. Is it still going to be big? People going to do dual fueled engines uh, more? Is LNG going to be a big solution in the next 10 years? Personally, I don't see how LNG can can achieve the decarbonization goals that other fuels can. And I only say that because when you look at the well to wake, you know, LNG comes off petroleum production. There's methane leakage around the entire supply chain. Cost wise, it's expensive now, especially with the issues going on in Europe especially with Russian LNG supplies being cut to Europe, causing prices to go up. Mm-hmm. So from an economic standpoint, it doesn't look promising. From a emission standpoint, it doesn't look promising. So in my opinion, I don't think LNG is the right solution to go to meet 2030. I think it's it's the wrong path. Do you think, uh, last, qu- last question, I guess, controversial, do you think any of the um, fuels we're discussing now might be just the similar buzzwords which never really happen, like similar, I guess, to uh, LNG? Well, I mean, well, LNG has happened. People have made the investments. So mm. you can't see it's not going to happen. Uh, people have made those choices. They've got their supply contracts. They've built the ships, and they're running them on LNG. Mm-hmm. So it has happened, and the infrastructure has been built to kind of handle those ships. You know, I think when you look at forward fuels, you know, I, I'm still a thought that hydrogen really the right answer as a gas, gaseous fuel, uh, or are there other applications for hydrogen that would create a better energy source? But then again, is the whole idea of how our engine plants are designed on ships the right way to design ships? 
I mean, are there better designs that can come out that would actually make a certain fuel choices more relevant because you're changing how you're producing the power to drive the ship? And that those are you know design criteria that can come into play that haven't been explored fully, or they are being explored, but they haven't been applied to yet. You know, are we going to return back to diesel electric, which then uses smaller horsepower plants and just mm. a large transformer to turn the prop? Are we going to see pod production, uh, pod propulsion become the, the standard on ships instead of the very long uh, 12-cylinder uh, diesel engine? So these are all questions that would drive what fuels in the future look like and how we're going to get there and what fuel actually has more value. Yeah, well, there's always innovation in the time, in the times like this. So we might see quite a bit of that going. But yeah, thank you very much, Rust. And I, f- I think there's still uh, quite a, f- quite a few topics around this we can discuss, maybe in part two. But for now, thank you for joining and sharing your wisdom with us. And thank you everyone for listening. If you would like to get access to freight data and news analytics, please refer to the August freight service. We shall leave the link in the description. Otherwise, have a great day and see you next time. Cheers. <laughs>